This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello and welcome to Nursing World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Jean Soliduk, a nurse scientist and a pediatric nurse practitioner at Boston Children's Hospital. And today, it is my privilege to be here with Dr. Martha Curley. Dr. Curley has joint appointments at both schools of medicine and nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a nurse scientist at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Curley has achieved wide recognition for her work related to the care of critically ill infants, children, and their families. Hi, hi Martha. Hi, Jean. And, and welcome. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. I'd like to talk about your recent publication. And for the audience, it was recently published in January in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And in this publication, you're both the first and the senior author. And it's entitled Protocolized Sedation Versus Usual Care in Pediatric Patients Mechanically Ventilated for Acute Respiratory Failure, a Randomized Trial. <clears throat> so that's quite a mouthful, mm -hmm. and um, it's quite a study. 2,500 patients in 31 different PICUs, critically ill children. Um, I, I believe that the impact from this will be enormous. Um, I, I want you to start and give us the background of the study. Thank you, Jean. Thanks so <clears throat> much for the wonderful uh, introduction. So the background of the study um, comes from when I was a clinical nurse specialist in the medical surgical intensive care unit here in Boston. And a long time ago, we had lots of patients who come into the pediatric intensive care unit, and the norm then was heavy sedation. Any patient coming in who had, you know, who was mechanically ventilated, heavily instrumentated, the norm was to use heavy sedation. Uh, because as you can imagine, having a critically ill infant, toddler, school-aged child, they really are cognitively immature to really understand the imperative nature of everything that is, uh, you know, connected to them, that essentially is there to support their physiological stability. So in addition to the norm being heavy sedation, we had an issue where Every time we had a different attending coming in, every time we had a different nurse, um, you know, at the bedside, everyone had high, you know, extreme variation in what they would consider to be appropriate levels of sedation. Uh, we found that we were uh, we were using lots of medications, uh, sedative medications, on these patients, and a lot of our patients were being transferred out of the intensive care unit with significant iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome, something that you manage when we get out of the intensive care unit. So back then, um, a cluster of us within the intensive care unit started really thinking about how we can improve the management, uh, sedation management of these kids. So uh, Dr. John Arnold, um, Dr. Brenda Dodson, who's a clinical pharmacist, Dr. Arnold is a pediatric intensivist, and myself put a group of people together to really, from that perspective of the time, 
uh, tried to improve how we could manage uh, patients' level of sedation. So we put a group of staff nurses together who worked days and nights, uh, and we met uh, repetitively over a two-year period of time uh, doing rapid cycle changes on how we manage sedation. And we kept developing a protocol and putting it out into the unit and everybody would pull out their hair and say, what are you, crazy, and we can't do this, or we don't like this part or that part. But after about 20 iterations, we either we warmed down or it finally started working. Uh, and it really was a protocol that everyone could resonate with. Uh, it really demanded at the time for us to, in addition to developing the protocol, we also had to develop a couple of instruments so that we could better assess patients at the time. Uh, we didn't have a sedation assessment tool, so we built and validated the state behavioral scale that really allowed us to do targeted sedation. We also recreated and validated the WAT-1, the withdrawal assessment tool, so that we could really have goal-directed weaning when it was time to wean the patient. So during that time, we was rapid cycle changes, trying to develop a protocol that would work for patients who span the continuum of age, building upon what was known at the time. And even in the beginning, we worked off a lot of things that were coming out of the adult press, um, the Brook paper, the Crest paper, about goal-directed sedation, using algorithms, um, the arousal assessment test so that every single patient who was mechanically ventilated would be awakened every day until they could cooperate and understand what was happening um, and then go back on their medicine. So, at, you know, at this time that we were building this, we were building off adult work, but we were also really conscious of the fact that we were using this protocol in kids who were cognitively immature. Um, lots of angst at the time. You know, if we do this protocol, number one, could nurses manage the protocol independently. Uh, a lot of angst around, could you really wake kids up and have them be more awake and engaged while intubated and ventilated, you know, in the intensive care unit. And really, when we move to uh, a systematic pattern of, of weaning kids from sedation, could we do that at a pace that really kept up with the patient's needs, but also allowed them to be moved through the system so that they can get out to the ward and then get home to their family? So the background really was rapid cycle changes, um, just putting your head down and keep going back in there, getting the protocol uh, pretty finely tuned and get it so that it could be um, worked with in a very busy uh, intensive care unit. Um, from that, uh, once we had the protocol down, you know, pretty well, we sought uh, funding from NICHD to do a pilot trial um, of the, you know, uh, the RESTORE protocol. So we tested it in two different intensive care units. We tested at DC Children's and we tested at Children's Hospital Wisconsin in a pre-post 
uh, evaluation, and we saw a really strong signal that, uh, number one, we could do it outside of Children's in Boston to two you know, new intensive care units. Uh, we used the data within those intensive care units to do another level of refinement. Um, and we knew in order to really test it um, within the uh, randomized uh, clinical trial that we had to get a lot of buy-in from a lot of intensive care units across the country. Uh, and we had to get funding from the uh, NIH. And so we went to NHLBI, uh, and after two rounds, they agreed to fund us. And so then we were off and running uh, with the test of the intervention. So I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Uh, when you leave your response, please first type the city and country uh, location of your institution, and, and here's the question. Does your institution use a protocol to titrate and wean patients? And does this protocol allow nurses to titrate medications within certain parameters based on the child's response? And do you think that this type of titration is within the role of nurses and why? And we'd like to rejoin our conversation with Martha Curley. Now, Martha, um, why a protocol? Why is that important? You know, a lot of people, uh, clinicians, have weaned patients without protocols. And um, so why, why is that important, do you think? Well, it's interesting because most people will, uh, will keep kids pretty well sedated, mm -hmm. you know, while they're getting better and they don't need the level of sedation that they're on. And then they're left with this very high level of sedation. And then, again, everyone feels passionate about keeping kids comfortable. Yeah. And they don't like looking at patients who at all might be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And as you know, you know, trying to keep kids comfortable while they're instrumentated and then trying to peel off the sedation and then having kids be really awake when they don't, you know, when they're not critically unstable. And then having a protocol that gets all the clinicians on the same page in a systematic way to start titrating the meds off when they're no longer necessary. It's just it just saves a lot of the angst that people at the bedside have. The parents don't have to go through a different, you know, set of uh, clinicians at the bedside with a different plan every other day. Uh, progress can be made, and at least it re removes all the religion around what people think are good practices around sedation. And there's a lot of passion about what people think works for them. And it may work for them when they're on service in their own unit, but not in multiple services across multiple units across the entire country. So, um, you know, the protocol was built because we had people at the bedside who cared passionately about getting rid of the unnecessary variation. Um, every single child's unique, you know, they need their plan, but they need a plan. Yeah. You know, and that's what a protocol does. It gives you a plan that might work for that particular patient. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in any protocol, uh, we say in the very first page of the Restore Protocol that it's not a substitute for clinical judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, no protocol should remove the bedside clinician's clinical judgment. 
and it should be modified if necessary in the best interest of a patient, but it should at least be tried. Yeah. Yeah. So Martha, tell us, what is the protocol? I know. So it really is interesting because while we developed a protocol in Boston and we did roll it out to two other units, it really, we never published the protocol. Um, and the reason for that was because we didn't want people who were early adopters to adopt a protocol until we could test the protocol. Sure. And in pediatrics, as you know, there are very few randomized any type of clinical trials. Mm -hmm. uh, we take a lot of what's uh, been tested in the adult world or in the neonatal world, and we move it into our world having not been tested. And so we didn't really talk about the protocol for a long time, so it's really nice to be able to finally discuss what it looks like. So uh, the protocol is just a two-page algorithm where the very first question that is posed is, is this patient in pain? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, the, the assumption here is that you have an intubated patient, you know, and um, you start doing your assessments. You always do pain first. Uh, and if the patient's in pain, then uh, there's a sequence of boluses that you can get to really get the pain in control quickly. And so there's a series of morphine boluses. But if the clinician doesn't believe that the patient's in pain but is agitated, their state behavioral scale is like a plus one or a plus two, then there's boluses of benzodiazepines that are given. Mm -hmm. And that's like immediately after the patient's intubated. But at that point, uh, there's a question posed on whether or not the anticipated length of mechanical ventilation will be more or less than two days. Mm -hmm. And if it's less than two days, then we stay with intermittent bolus dosing of morphine and or benzodiazepine. And the reason for that is because you don't want to commit a patient to a continuous infusion that is known to increase tolerance and dependence and yeah. is totally unnecessary if the plan is to get the patient extubated quickly. Mm -hmm. But if the patient's pretty sick because of acute respiratory failure, then, and you anticipate that the patient will be uh, intubated for more than two days, then we do start them on continuous infusions of morphine uh, and or uh, midazolam. Uh, and so they're started at minimum continuous doses, and there's a strategy of bolus dosing patients for intermittent breakthrough pain or agitation. Um, and that's page one. Okay. That's just like the startup. But what happens is that then the patient moves to page two, and page two forces the clinicians to have a conversation during rounds every day and identify where the patient is in their trajectory of illness. Mm -hmm. um, when, and there is a, a trajectory, yeah. you know, and not all kids require heavy sedation throughout their entire trajectory. Mm -hmm. So there's acute titration and there's weaning to extubation. Those are the three phases. Uh, so every single day on rounds, the team comes together, uh, the multidisciplinary team, and they identify where the patient is in their trajectory. Mm -hmm. Typically, acute is followed by titration phase, followed by the weaning phase, and the duration of which is dependent upon the patient's criticality in their responsiveness to therapy. But during the acute phase, you shoot for an SBS of negative one or negative two mm -hmm. to really get the kid calmed down and so that they're more
more receptive to the therapies that you're trying to institute. And so you kind of remove agitation and pain out of the equation. And if anything in that phase, you, if the patient receives more than three bolus doses mm -hmm. um, of either morphine or midazolam to control pain or agitation, then you go up on the continuous infusion dose. Mm -hmm. And so acute phase, they're pretty comfortable and you go up on um, sure. you know, sedation. But as soon as the patient is no longer in the acute phase um, and they move into what I refer to as the titration phase, mm -hmm. where they're no longer critically unstable, they're stable within the intensive care unit, but they're no longer critically unstable. You're no longer titrating therapies constantly, and they're stable within the intensive care unit. They move into this titration phase. And at that point, we try to test patients' ability to be extubated. Mm -hmm. So it asks for extubation readiness testing to be performed. Mm -hmm. And then we also, if the patient is too uh, sedated because of a remnant of what they were experiencing in the NQ phase. Mm -hmm. If their SBS is negative two or negative three, we do an arousal assessment. Mm -hmm. We turn off the sedation until the patient is more like a negative one SBS or an awake state, mm -hmm. and then we turn back on the sedation. If they're like a negative two, negative one, and you want them a little bit lighter, mm -hmm. uh, again, you can, instead of turning off the sedation, you can just wean it down by 50%. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, you want to give the patient minimal but effective sedation. Uh, so not unconscious, right. but minimum, but effective. And they have breakthroughs throughout the day of what they need. But at that point, every eight hours, there's a forced titration, mm -hmm. depending upon the number of boluses that the patient received. If they have three or more, you go up. If they don't have three within eight hours, you go down. So there's forced titration of sedation during the titration phase. And what happens is that over time, if you have a long titration phase, the patient is really awake most of the time, you know, and you end up moving into the weaning to extubation phase with low levels of drugs on board. Mm -hmm. And from that point, then decision is made, passing the extubation test, you need to get the patient extubated. And at that point, we started a weaning, the weaning part of uh, the protocol, where you immediately wean you know, the opioid uh, by 10%, mm -hmm. and then every eight hours continue to wean that original dose until the morphine is off, mm -hmm. and then you start the opioid wean 20% per day. And if the patient's not tolerant at any point in time of the wean, you give them a rescue dose. Mm -hmm. uh, if that doesn't work, you can start clonidine. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work, then only then would you start methadone, which is very different than a lot of people's practices where patients been on for any amount of time and then you transition to methadone and then you've committed the patient for days of you know, titration off methadone. Mm -hmm. So we try to titrate during the titration phase, mm -hmm. start at lower doses, systematically wean in sequence, mm -hmm. give the patient some ability to get off their primary agent without committing them to a, a longer term 
agent. That sounds great. Yeah. So that's the protocol. I mean, there's some backup pieces of the protocol. Uh, so if the patient, and we have identified this phenotype of difficult to sedate, mm -hmm. and we're probing the data set a little bit about, you know, what is really the difficult to mm -hmm. sedate, the child who doesn't really respond to typical doses, yeah. you know, and try to identify that small cohort of kids who don't sedate no matter what you give them. Uh, but within the protocol, we did embed uh, some secondary plans so that if the patient failed to be able to be comforted, there's backup plans. There was a plan for uh, dexmedetomidine to be used mm -hmm. to facilitate extubation in you know, that difficult toddler who hates to be awake but still intubated but needs to breathe yeah. after they get extubated. So we accommodated that as well. Oh, that's great, yeah. You thought of everything, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about the nurse implement, implemented goal-directed part of this? So why nurses? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of clinicians now, it's, it's really it's sort of a physician-directed um, writing mm -hmm. orders on this. So why nursing? Why do you think it's within the role of nursing to do this? Well, I think... Um, a key piece of the RESTORE protocol has to do with multidisciplinary agreement on targets. Mm -hmm. It's targeted sedation. And going on rounds every day, everyone giving their perspective on how awake in response that the child should be, how, how they do or do not tolerate the intensive care environment is huge. You know, and nurses need to be able to bring knowledge to that multidisciplinary rounds because they're the 24-7. You know, they're at the bedside and they know what their patients can do or cannot do and cannot tolerate. Mm -hmm. But the physicians know the medical management of the patient. They have their plan. They know what they want to be able to achieve. Mm -hmm. But it's done collectively. You know, intensive care is about multiple disciplines coming together to the patient's best interest. And what the nurse brings is all the pain, the sedation, the withdrawal assessments, their understanding of the patient's tolerance, um, and they can immediately titrate the drugs to the patient's best interest. Mm -hmm. So in the olden days, you know, if a patient was uncomfortable, you'd have to go find somebody yeah. to come look at the patient and then write a new order and then they would have to go get the medication and then come back to the bedside and then give the medication. Meanwhile, the patient's flailing you know, very upset, very uncomfortable, decannulating everything that's right. attached to them, whereas if you allow nurses to titrate the sedation within the goals that have been agreed upon in rounds, you get immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. And so you're not having these extremes of patients' uh, response. And I think the Nurse Practice Acts have been catching up with what good care is clinically to, with a whole host of therapies, um, uh, you know, creating a mechanism where nurses can take the lead with certain therapies. Yeah. And sedation is definitely one of them. You know, there's sedation, there's feeding, there's ambulation. It's all about creating a healing milieu for the patient and giving the people who are at the bedside 24-7 an opportunity to use their clinical judgment sure. yeah. in, the pa in the patient's best interest. But, you know, uh, ICU nurses have always taken the heat that, um, you know, nurses like their patients comfortable and they don't like them moving. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's not the case. Yeah. 
Uh, nurses will always do what's best for patients. So I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Uh, when you leave your response, please first type the city and country uh, location of your institution, and, and here's the question. Given the, the movement on nurse-led therapies, what therapies are nurses leading in your institution? And we're back now with Dr. Martha Curley. You know, if, if you were to look at um, only the primary outcome of this study, this would be a negative study. So um, why did you choose duration of mechanical ventilation as, as the primary um, aim of this study? So at the time um, when we designed the study, the papers that were coming out of the adult world, the Brooke paper, the Crest paper, um, the ABC paper um, that was coming out of Vanderbilt, all of those papers were aligning heavy sedation with length of mechanical ventilation. And we do know that um, when patients are heavily sedated, they don't participate uh, in their breathing. But over the last few years, it's all about um, supporting the patient's capacity to breathe. So there's been some changes. But when we designed the study, we were leveraging the findings off the adult studies that were showing a decrease in the length of mechanical ventilation. Um, and so we selected that as a primary outcome because it's a hard outcome. Yeah. You know, the endotracheal tube is in or out. The right, patient's right. being supported on mechanical ventilation or they're not. But knowing that we had to essentially have the, uh, we had to power the study off the primary outcome, which was the length of mechanical ventilation, we also built in all the secondary outcomes where we knew we would have a positive effect. And the secondary outcomes included uh, the duration of the acute phase, uh, the weaning phase. We looked at um, the uh, the numbers of neurological testing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Crest found that you decrease the frequency of neurological testing when a patient was more awake and interactive. So we included uh, the frequency of neurological testing. But more importantly, we included uh, the time of wakefulness in the intensive care unit. We looked at whether, you know, the time to awake and, you know, cooperative and interactive as an, as an outcome. We looked at the duration of agitation, mm -hmm. uh, pain. Uh, we looked at a whole host of secondary outcomes related to oversedation, and that was like pressure ulcers. Mm -hmm. And so we embedded all that into secondaries. But the primary outcome for this study was the duration of mechanical ventilation. It was negative on the primary outcome. We found no difference really in the duration of mechanical ventilation, but I definitely believe that we improved the qualitative experience you know, experience of critical illness for these kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so what we did find was no duration, no, in, no decrease in the duration of mechanical ventilation, but we found that kids were, uh, uh, the time to awake and cooperative uh, was increased. Yeah. Uh, so exactly what we thought we'd find. Yeah. Uh, we found that we could get kids to be comfortable uh, they and we also found that nurses could manage this without an increase in adverse events. Mm -hmm. So we could wake kids up. We could have them minimally 
but effectively sedation. Um, at that point, we did see more breakthrough of pain and agitation, mm -hmm. but all of that was um, effectively managed within our two-hour window of getting kids to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were typically more awake, mm -hmm. more interactive, um, and um, so I think, in essence, this was a very positive <laughs> clinical trial. Absolutely. And if anything, yes. it got us all on the same page. Yes. So that was huge. Yes. And, yeah. you know, from someone from the pain service perspective, using less opioids is huge on the mm -hmm. other part of that, you mm -hmm. know, on the weaning part. So, yes, there, there were a lot of positive outcomes from this. Yeah, we were able to shave days off the opioid exposure. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, um, we don't know what the long-term impact of any of these sedatives have on the developing brain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of the Restore clinical trial uh, was the effect of the nurse-implemented goal-directed sedation strategy on length of mechanical ventilation. We also had an economic outcome, and we also had a quality of life outcome. Uh, the other two, the economic outcome and the quality of life outcome, we're still in the middle of crunching data for that. Okay. Um, it's the first study that really comprehensively will describe what these kids are looking like after PICU discharge. Yeah. And with a colleague, Scott Watson, from uh, Seattle Children's, the mm -hmm. two of us uh, have also been recently funded by NICHD to take the cohort of kids that consented for follow-up in the RESTORE trial and look at their the cognitive impact of sedation on you know long-term outcomes, and so we're bringing back 500 kids and their SIBs uh, to have cognitive evaluations uh, because hopefully we will never eliminate sedation, or maybe we will. I don't know from the uh, from the experience of critical illness. But what we will do, hopefully, is find that best sedative agent that not only keeps the kids comfortable and responsive in the intensive care unit, but also preserves their cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Because it's not all about mortality anymore, it's about the morbidity of critical illness that we have to pay attention to. And so we have to keep kids uh, sedated in the ICU, but which agent is the best agent? Mm -hmm. And so we call it restore cognition. So restore cog will answer that question. And it's been interesting in rolling into that clinical trial because uh, families, you know, typically in the intensive care unit, you get like a 75% consent rate mm -hmm. for, for studies. Yeah. Uh, we had a high consent rate for Restore, and we even had a higher consent rate for follow-up. And now that we're consenting uh, these families for Restore Cognition, it's almost 100% wow. consent rate because these families are very concerned. Yeah about the long-term impact of sedation and critical illness uh, on their children. So very few families are declining participation. And when they do, most of it has to do with just the logistics of trying to, sure. you know, to get, get their there. children right. to be tested. Uh, so we're really excited you know, about that. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Uh, when you leave your response, please first type the city and country uh, location of your institution, and, and here's the question. So in your institution, do you routinely monitor for agitation and withdrawal in, in patients in the critical care units? 
And we're back now with Dr. Martha Curley. Can you talk more about your next steps? So now that we know that you can have a more awake patient mm -hmm. uh, in the intensive care unit, uh, and we know that nurses can safely manage patients in a more awake state, uh, and we know that it advantages patients with less drug exposure being enrolled into Restore, the next state is really to create a more healing uh, intensive care environment. Mm -hmm. Um, if you think about the intensive care environment, it's pretty loud, there's no day-night cycling, people come in and out, families are there in, in and out. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, any mom or dad in the world would know mm -hmm. that kids really like routine. Mm -hmm. And if you really mess up a kid's routine, then you need to give yeah. them more sedation. <laughs> You know, it's not rocket science here. So, you know, what I would like to be able to do is work with some of my collaborators across the country and think about how we can, right from the get-go, mm -hmm. interview families about, tell me about Johnny. Yeah. Tell me about your child. How do they spend their day? And try to replicate their rhythm, their circadian rhythm within the intensive care unit. Think about the noise and the light exposure. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's nighttime, the light should be out. You know, if the kid has a nap at two to three, let's give the kid a nap between two and three. Um, and then let's keep the noise down. You know, some of the, the equipment within the ICU need not be so noisy. So really contain um, the environment. Um, there's some really good research that's coming up on delirium assessment. Um, and we've now got three really good pediatric delirium assessment tools that, um, you know, are uh, going to be part and parcel of intensive care. Uh, I personally don't think that each kid in the intensive care unit needs to have a delirium assessment done, but they need screening in high-risk groups. Mm -hmm. So what are those high-risk groups and, you know, what screening can be done? Um, and then get Restore in, get minimally effective sedation going so that kids can get more active, get out of bed, you know, have their normal routine. Uh, typically, you know, we get kids, they, they you know, it, to be held in the intensive care unit is a big yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, not every kid, you know, needs to be in bed all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as soon as they're able to get them up and moving uh, is critically important, but we don't have too much information on how best to make that happen, uh, you know, in pediatrics. Um, there's a whole group out of Hopkins who's dealing, doing really exciting work mm -hmm. um, with early mobilization. Uh, Sapna Kutchkar is doing this amazing study on, you know, sleep and early uh, physical therapy. Uh, Karen Chow from Toronto Children's doing great stuff on early rehab as well. Mm -hmm. So we, so now that we have more awake kids, mm -hmm. we can now do more things with them. Yeah. But we also have to not just have it always be medication related. Sure. Let's think about how to create a healing milieu within the intensive care unit. Uh, and nurses are the people who can create that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the ones who, right from Nightingale days, yeah. you know, the purpose of nursing is to put the patient in the best condition for nature to act. So how do we do that in intensive care? So I think nursing has lots of opportunities to do great nursing research around how to create a healing intensive care environment. 
Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that uh, as I get more and more gray hair, um, you know, but not forgetting, obviously, the family work that I had done a long time ago. And how do you really get families involved and engaged in real ways within the intensive care unit? So I do have a next step of an intervention. Mm -hmm. I'm testing pieces of it uh, at Children's Hospital Philadelphia as well. Um, partnering with my colleagues at Hopkins to hopefully come up with the next phase uh, and then do a more pragmatic clinical trial. You know, here in Boston, the cardiac intensive care unit mm -hmm. has now, um, they're now pilot testing Restore Cardiac. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've taken the Restore protocol that was really built for respiratory failure. We're now embedding, you know, the nuances of cardiac care with it, and it's going extremely well within that environment. So Restore Cardiac, mm -hmm. uh, creating a healing environment uh, is critically important. So those are the next steps. Thank you so much for being here today, but mostly for all that you do for children and families and nursing. Well, thank you, Jane. <laughs> this recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.